Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 2nd of September for the listening week that begins the 3rd. This week you'll be hearing about Black August, which has just passed, Serena Williams, and other current events of note, and also some articles with some historical perspective. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Diving in with this article from AP News, written by Almas Abeji, was posted August 25th. Black August uplifted as alternative Black History Month. Dateline, Washington. For Jonathan Peter Jackson, a direct relative of two prominent members of the Black Panther Party, revolutionary thought and family history have always been intertwined, particularly in August. That's the month in 1971 when his uncle, the famed Panther George Jackson, was killed during an uprising at San Quentin State Prison in California. A revolutionary whose words resonated inside and out of the prison walls, he was a published author, activist, and radical thought leader. To many, February is the month dedicated to celebrating black Americans' contributions to a country where they were once enslaved. But Black History Month has an alternative. It is called Black August. First celebrated in 1979, Black August was created to commemorate Jackson's fight for black liberation. Fifty-one years since his death, Black August is now a month-long awareness campaign and celebration dedicated to black freedom fighters, revolutionaries, radicals, and political prisoners, both living and deceased. The annual commemorations have been embraced by activists in the global Black Lives Matter movement, many of whom draw inspiration from freedom fighters like Jackson and his contemporaries. It is important to do this now because a lot of people who were on the radical scene during that time period, relatives and non-relatives, who are like blood relatives, are entering their golden years said Jonathan Jackson, 51, of Fair Hill, Maryland. George Jackson was 18 when he was arrested for robbing a gas station in Los Angeles in 1960. He was convicted and given an in, pardon me, indeterminate sentence of one year to life and spent the next decade at California's Soledad and San Quentin prisons, much of it in solitary confinement. While incarcerated, Jackson began studying the words of revolutionary theoreticians such as Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin, who advocated class awareness, challenging institutions, and overturning capitalism through revolution. Founding leaders of the Panthers, including Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, were also inspired by Marx, Lenin, and Chinese communist leader Mao Zedong. 
Jackson became a leader in the prisoner rights movement. His letters from prison to loved ones and supporters were compiled in the best-selling books Soledad Brother and Blood in My Eye. Inspired by his words and frustrated with his situation, George's younger brother, Jonathan, initiated a takeover at the Marine County Superior Court in California in 1970. He freed three inmates and held several courthouse staff hostage in an attempt to demand the release of his brother and two other inmates known as the Soledad Brothers, who were accused of killing a correctional officer. Jonathan was killed as he tried to escape, although it's disputed whether he was killed in a courtroom shootout or fatally shot while driving away with hostages. George was killed on August 21, 1971, during a prison uprising. Inmates at San Quentin Prison began formally commemorating his death in 1979, and from there, Black August was born. I certainly wish that more people knew about George's writings and knew about my father's sacrifice on that fateful day in August, said Jonathan Jackson, who wrote the foreword to Soledad Brother in the 19, pardon me, in the early 1900s. Pardon me, that's the early 1990s, shortly after graduating from college. Monifa Bandele, a leader in the movement for black lives, a national coalition of BLM groups, says Black August is about learning the vast history of black revolutionary leaders. That includes figures such as Nat Turner, who is famous for leading a slave rebellion on a southern Virginia plantation in August 1831, and Marcus Garvey, the leader of the Pan-Africanism movement, who was born in August 1887. It also includes events such as the Haitian Revolution in 1791 and the March on Washington in 1963, both taking place in the month of August. This idea that there was this all one narrow way that black people resisted oppression is really a myth that is dispelled by Black August, said Bandele, who is also a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement, a group that raises awareness of political prisoners. And what we saw happen after the 1970s is that it grew outside of the prison walls because as people who were incarcerated came home to their families and communities, they began to do community celebrations of Black August, she added. The ways of honoring this month also come in various forms and have evolved over the years. Some take part in fasting, while others use this time to study the ways of their predecessors. Weekly event series are also common during Black August, from reading groups to open mic nights. Sankofa, a black-owned cultural center and coffee shop in Washington that has served the D.C. community for nearly 25 years, wraps up a weekly open mic night in honor of Black August. The event has drawn local residents of all ages Many who have shared stories, read poetry, and performed songs with the theme of rebellion. This month is all about resistance and celebrating our political prisoners and using all of the faculties that we have to free people who are in prison, let me say unjustly, said M.C. Allende 
Sekoi at a recent crowd, oh, pardon me, to a crowd at a recent event at Sankofa. Jonathan Jackson, George's nephew, also believes that there are largely systemic reasons as to why Black August and his family history specifically are not widely taught. It's difficult sometimes for radicals who were not assassinated per se to enter into the popular discourse, he said. George and Jonathan were never victims. They took action, and they were killed taking that action. And sometimes that's very difficult to understand for people who will accept a political assassination. Jackson hopes to honor his father's and uncle's legacy through documenting the knowledge of elders from that era as a means of continuing the fight. We need to get those testimonies. We need to understand what happened so that we can improve on what they did. I think now is as good a time as any to get that done, he said. Next one comes from the Washington Post. It was posted on August 28th, written by Ellie Silverman. King Family announces coalition to aid black-brown organizers. Nearly 60 years after the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. stood at the Lincoln Memorial and delivered his I Have a Dream speech, relatives say his vision is far from realized. Instead of marching on the nation's capital this anniversary, Martin Luther King III and his wife, Andrea Waters King, are focusing their efforts on black and brown organizers in communities across the country. They announced on Sunday the launch of a coalition that will invest millions of dollars in 40 groups that promote freedom, justice, and equality, a recognition of the ways great social movements harnessed the power of grassroots organizing to achieve progress. What I learned a long time ago, even my father's campaigns, they really were marathons. And so this is a marathon, said Martin Luther King III the late civil rights leader's elder son. He went on, It is those individuals, those community organizations that are working every day in the trenches that ultimately have the capacity, even, pardon me, have the capacity, if they're fully funded, to make tremendous impacts. The King family is also looking ahead to next year and asking people to join them in D.C. the weekend of August 26th, 2023, to mark the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. The Drum Major Coalition will be a partnership between influential wealthy leaders and community organizers, said the King family. It will launch with $5 million from members like actor Ben Stiller, Slack co-founder Cal Henderson, and billionaire cryptocurrency investor Michael Novogratz, Those funds will be distributed among 40 organizations, and the family hopes to expand the coalition to include a roster of 200 members who can contribute $100 million by 2024. The groups the coalition will support include those that register black voters, educate Latino evangelical communities on the issues that matter to them, and advocate for the restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions. Andrea Waters King said she hopes this investment helps build power and infrastructure among black and brown 
community groups that are often underfunded. The investments into black and brown-led community organizations comes ahead of the November midterm elections. The results will determine which party controls Congress, how much power election deniers could secure in key battleground states ahead of the 2024 presidential elections, and the future of abortion access in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan where Democrat governors, Democratic governors have blocked anti-abortion legislation proposed or passed by Republican-led legislators. Right now, Andrea Waters King said, our democracy is in peril. Waters King also referenced Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King's dream of a beloved community where people can live and work and thrive unencumbered. The best way to realize the dream, build the beloved community, she said, is to help facilitate these groups on the ground that are organizing their communities every single day. Martin Luther King III and Andrea Waters King also said they worry about the GOP's national push to enact hundreds of new election restrictions that they say would erode participation in the country's democracy. They hope consistent funding in groups that are educating, registering, and encouraging voters to cast their ballots will empower people who are too often overlooked and disenfranchised. Latosha Brown, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, said she plans to use coalition funds to educate people around civic engagement, including voter registration, and to bolster efforts in states where the organization sees the height of voter suppression strengthen, like Georgia, Florida, and Texas. Brown said, we are at a defining moment in American democracy if we will go forward with a multiracial, multigenerational coalition of people who want democracy, or whether we will let this system be destroyed by those who seek to maintain power at the expense of disenfranchising and terrorizing the rest of us. Atkinson, co-director of Forward Justice, a civil rights group in Durham, North Carolina, was the lead attorney who filed a lawsuit challenging a state law that restricted when people serving felony community supervision could regain their voting rights. His team argued the law was designed to discriminate against black people and prevent them from exercising political power at the ballot box. North Carolina judges ruled in their favor in 2021, ordering the restoration of voting rights for thousands of people with a felony conviction. That case has been appealed and is now before the state's Supreme Court. Our next article comes from the Denver Post, September 1st edition, written by Anemona Hartikolis. Looks like originally from the New York Times. First AP African American Studies class is coming. The College Board is jumping into the fray over how to teach the history of race in the United States with a new advanced placement course and exam on African American studies that will be tried out in about 60 high schools this fall. The course is multidisciplinary, addressing not just history, but civil rights, politics, literature, the arts, even geography, 
If the pilot program pans out, it will be the first course in African American studies for high school students that is considered rigorous enough to allow students to receive credit and advanced placement at many colleges across the country. The plan for an advanced placement course is a significant step in acknowledging the field of African American studies. More than 50 years after what has been credited as the first black studies department was started after a student strike at San Francisco State College in 1968. According to Henry Louis Gates Jr., former chair of Harvard's Department of African and African American Studies and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. The college board declined to release a sample syllabus or any content for the course or to name the 60 schools or say what states they were located in. But Marlon Williams Clark, a social studies teacher in Florida who is part of the pilot program, said that among the subjects were how African American studies became a field of study at the college level in the 1960s. The strength of early African kingdoms and cultures, the transatlantic slave trade, the lives of enslaved people and what they did to resist, and moving toward the Harlem Renaissance, black power and black pride, the civil rights movement, black feminism, and intersectionality. Students will take a pilot exam, but will not receive scores or college credit, according to the college board. The course comes at a precarious time for the teaching of history. Across the country this year, 36 states have introduced 137 bills seeking to restrict teaching, mainly on race, but also on gender and history, up from 22 states and 54 bills last year. That's according to PEN America, a free speech group. Most of those bills have been driven by Republican legislators. If all goes well, the full AP course will be available to all high schools in the 2024-25 school year. Same topic. Our next one comes from 5280, Denver's Mile High Magazine. This was posted August Oh, their August edition, apparently, by Samuel Shaw. Why Denver's East High School is trying a new kind of AP class. The African Diaspora Seminar is attracting students from diverse backgrounds and helping to level the playing field in advanced placement classes. It's 9.30 on a Thursday morning, and the students inside room 327 at Denver's East High School are supposed to be watching a documentary about World War II. Class is almost over, though, so even when the teacher pauses the video to ask a question about the United States international trade policy during the conflict, most of the teenagers in the Advanced Placement AP U.S. History class continue preparing for next period's pre-calculus quiz. The clicking of fingers on graphing calculators fills the room. When the bell chimes, one AP class replaces another inside room 327. Harlem Porter finds an open desk in the back and opens their laptop. Like their peers in the AP African Diaspora Seminar, Porter is working on a long-term research paper that will decide whether they pass or fail the course. I'm looking at how Eurocentrism has affected the sexuality of Africans 
through the cosmology of two separate tribes, the Igbo and the Yoruba, of West Africa, says Porter. With those tribes, genders aren't assigned until you're around five. Porter, who is non-binary, explains that Christian colonists, quote, overrode those beliefs, and that the effect is still being felt by the United States' black communities today. Porter says, it's a topic that's close to my heart. Porter would normally stand out in an AP class, not just because of their passion for the material, but also because of their race. According to the Education Trust, black and Latino students are underrepresented in AP courses across the country. That's certainly the case in East High School's AP U.S. History class, which has a minority enrollment of 17%. The school's African Diaspora Seminar, however, is 52% minority, nearly mirroring East's student body, which is 48% non-white. That level of representation in an AP course is like finding a unicorn, says Paul Markson III, who co-teaches the AP African Diaspora Seminar. You just don't see it anywhere. Markson is all too familiar with the racial achievement gaps in Colorado's AP classes. Black students in the state are roughly 30% less likely to enroll in such courses than their white counterparts. Of those who do take an AP test, only 26% pass the end-of-term exam, compared to 67% of white students. For years, Markson and members of East's faculty had discussed ways to increase minority participation in AP classes, but progress was slow. Basically, says Markson, there was no real interest because the classes hadn't changed. The College Board, a New York City-based not-for-profit known for administering standardized tests such as the SAT, introduced AP classes to students during the 1950s, created to prepare kids for U.S. universities by replicating the lecture hall experience A stock AP class feeds massive amounts of information to passive learners. At the end of the year, students are tested on what they've learned by taking a single exam. It's a drill-and-kill philosophy, says Markson, that's high on stress and low on creative thinking. It also favors upper-middle-class white students, says Kristen Klopfenstein, director of the Colorado Evaluation and Action Lab at the University of Denver. Klopfenstein goes on, Since AP courses were designed to replicate college, all the barriers that exist for attending higher education are the same barriers that exist in advanced placement courses. Because minority students often attend chronically underfunded and underperforming elementary and middle schools, They are ill-prepared for the rigors of an AP class, meaning they fall behind their peers. Research shows that AP students perform better academically once they're in college. In 2014, however, the College Board unveiled... Hello and welcome to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. This is the Black Experience Hour. My name is Susan. And bringing you news and reviews from the last week. I'm opening with a few articles from theroot.com. 
and then we'll move also to some articles taken from the this week's Sunday New York Times. First up, written by Ishina Robinson. Oh, pardon me, before I go further, let's say this following recording is intended solely for the use of blind, visually impaired, and print format disabled individuals, and it's being recorded on the 26th of February for the listening week that begins the 27th. Beginning with Biden administration will send masks to low-income communities across the country. This was posted on the 25th, written by Ishina Robinson. We're a year into the pandemic, but the U.S. government is just getting around to implementing some common-sense measures to protect the American population against the deadly coronavirus. According to CBS News, the Biden administration will be sending 25 million cloth masks to community centers, health centers, and food banks in hopes of reaching about 12 to 15 million Americans living in disadvantaged areas. The planned mask distribution is part of the White House's efforts to improve equity in how the government has responded to the pandemic, which, as we know, has been disproportionately affecting black communities and other communities of color. It's also an amended version of the Trump administration's abandoned plan to send masks to all Americans, which would have been an immensely helpful thing for the government to do, especially in the earliest days of the pandemic. The Biden administration also considered sending out masks to every American before deciding on this targeted approach to reach communities that likely need the most help. The distribution locations, community health centers and food banks that support soup kitchens and food pantries, are aimed at reaching low-income people and other especially vulnerable populations with free masks. The White House says two-thirds of the people served by community health centers are living in poverty, and the majority of them are people of color. In January, the president asked all Americans to wear masks for his first 100 days in office, calling it a patriotic act. The U.S. hit a world-leading milestone of 500,000 coronavirus deaths just this week. Scientists have said that donning two masks, a cloth mask over a surgical mask, is likely to better protect people from contracting the COVID-19 variants that are now circulating in the U.S. The Biden administration says the cloth masks it will be distributing meet the guidelines set by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and that each person will be encouraged to take two masks for each person in their household. The masks will start going out in March and distribution will run until May. Next to sports. This is written by Jay Connor, posted on the 27th. Pardon me, on the 26th. Michigan Northwestern announced George Jewett Trophy to honor Big Ten's first black player. 
While pursuing a degree in nursing, George Jewett broke the color barrier as the first black football player in the history of the Big Ten. During the 1890 and 1892 seasons, he played fullback, halfback, and kicker at Michigan before transferring to Northwestern in 1893 to play two more seasons and earn his degree. Typically, the George Jewetts of the world would go unsung or end up as some obscure Jeopardy question, but Michigan and Northwestern are ensuring his legacy as a trailblazer will never be forgotten with their announcement of a trophy in his honor. According to CBS Sports, the George Jewett Trophy will be awarded to whoever wins the rivalry game between those two schools. The trophy is the first FBS college football trophy to be named after a black player. According to Michigan's athletic director, Ward Manuel, this is an historic moment in major college football history. We are proud to partner with our peer institution, Northwestern, to recognize and honor an African-American pioneer in George Jewett. George achieved at a high level as an athlete and doctor. His hard work and effort led to success not only for himself, but for those who would follow a similar path after him. His excellence at two Big Ten institutions as a student, athlete, and citizen is something we want our current student-athletes to aspire to during their collegiate experience. The George Jewett Trophy will become a proud celebration of the importance of diversity on our, to diversity on our teams, campuses, and in our society. After finishing college, Jewett moved to Chicago and became a doctor until 1899. He then relocated to Ann Arbor, Michigan to coach and establish a dry cleaning and pressing business. He died in 1908 at the age of 38. This is a deserved and exciting acknowledgement of Dr. George Jewett, a landmark figure for both Northwestern and Michigan, said Jana Blaise, who is Northwestern's interim athletic director in a statement. She went on, beginning this fall, each time Wildcats and Wolverines student-athletes meet on the football field, it will be in celebration of a true pioneer. Every future meeting will stand as an opportunity to educate, communicate, and inspire our communities in Dr. Jewett's memory. Those dates will also offer a chance to take stock of the critical work taking place to create cultures defined by justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and excellence on our campuses and beyond. Next, moving to the media world for several articles. This was written by Tanya Renee Stidham, posted on the 25th. The Empire of Ebony. Lisa Cortez will direct documentary on the rise and impact of the first black media empire. The first ever black media empire, Ebony, is getting its own documentary. Lisa Cortez, known for all in the fight for democracy and the Apollo will direct the film 
and Academy Award and Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Roger Ross, Roger Ross Williams, also the Apollo and Life Animated, will produce via One Story Up. Cortez will also produce. Here's what you can expect from the documentary, according to the release that was sent to The Root. The Empire of Ebony will take an expansive look at the Johnson Publishing Company and their titles, Ebony and Jet. The film will explore two of the most influential publications in the history of American media, all the way from the media empire's beginnings as a small publishing company, started by John H. Johnson and Eunice W. Johnson with a $500 loan, to its incredible growth into a publishing juggernaut with an unparalleled cultural impact. The film will chart the rise of Ebony and Jet and their growth into a brand with a readership base in the millions, which has had an undeniable effect on American culture. This will include the important role these publications played in illuminating key moments in American history that went unreported by the mainstream media. With access to Ebony and Jet's extensive archives, the film will also chronicle the media empire's revolutionary effect on not just the media landscape, but American culture, consumerism, and history. The Empire of Ebony will provide a powerful testament to the visionary entrepreneurship of the Ebony media empire and a dynamic story of black struggle and triumph in America. According to Cortez, who said this in a statement, Growing up, Ebony and Jet were in every black household, and they were everything. You could start reading at home and finish at the beauty parlor, barbershop, or at your auntie's house. In the pages of these magazines, I saw black people who inspired me to dream and create. I am so excited to be working with the incredible team at One Story Up, anchored by Roger Ross Williams, and honored that Linda Ross, pardon me, Linda Johnson Rice has entrusted me to tell this story for the first time. Through a visual archive spanning 75 years of the most important moments of African American life, the Empire of Ebony will be a revolutionary, pardon me, the Empire of Ebony will be a revelatory story of entrepreneurship, innovation, and black love. Of course, we can't help but wonder if the documentary will explore the fall along with the rise. In fact, it has been quite a roller coaster ride of rises, falls, and rebirths, with the magazine being recently purchased for $14 million by retired Milwaukee Bucks forward Ulysses Jr. Bridgman and the very recent appointment of its new CEO, Michelle Gee. It looks like this is the time to do a retrospective of our legacy black publications because it was announced last October that HBO Max would be developing a drama series based on Essence Magazine's origin story. And the final quote comes from Williams. The lasting impact Ebony and Jet has is undeniable. With these publications, the Johnson Publishing Company changed the entire American press landscape and completely revolutionized the way black Americans were able to see themselves in popular culture, 
media, and advertising. We've seen numerous documentaries about other publications like Rolling Stone, Playboy, and the New York Times, but have yet to see something about such dynamic magazines like Ebony and Jet. I'm thrilled to be able to collaborate with Lisa, Linda, and Brenda through One Story Up to bring this project to life and shine a well-deserved spotlight on this influential and powerful media empire. And following that, the next one was posted on the 25th, written by Chanel Janai. Black Renaissance and Chill, finish Black History Month strong with this week's virtual events. I'm scrolling down to what will matter at this point. Starting on February 27th, we have the collective 25 Black Women in Beauty will be hosting a full-day summit on topics shaping Black women and the future of beauty. That will be the 27th. From Emerging Brands, Product Innovation, Insight, and Black Muses Redefining the Beauty Landscape, they hope to provide various sessions packed with information and a healthy dose of inspiration. Featured speakers include CEO and co-owner of Black Opal, Desiree Rogers, Desiree Rogers, Vice President of Marketing at Ulta Beauty, Carla Davis, Founder and CEO of Camille Rose Organics, Janelle Stevens, Chief Marketing Officer of Tatcha, Sarah Curtis Henry, and many more. Capacity is limited, and there is a price for this ticket. I think it's around $50. For more information, or to try to secure a last-minute seat, I'm going to that website, which is www.25bwb.org And also on the 27th This also this runs actually from the 27th through the 3rd of March Fresh Prince of Bel Air star Jeanette Hubert will star in a virtual reading of Douglas Lyons' family comedy, Chicken and Biscuits, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to benefit Lyons' The Next Wave Initiative. The comedy centers on African, on an African-American family who becomes forced to confront their skeletons head-on as sisters attempt to put their differences aside to bury their father. Chicken and Biscuits stars Janet Hubert as Benita, Michael Yuri as Logan, Carly Hughes as Brianna, Danny Johnson as Reginald, Alana Raquel Bowers as Simone, Ebony Marshall Oliver as Beverly, Devere Rogers as Kinney, and Anger Mizell as Latrice. Next Wave is a series of scholarships gifted to young black college theater artists. The Next Wave Initiative. Crowning them for their work and encouraging them to push forward. The virtual reading will stream live on Saturday with a recorded version of the event available to view on demand through March 3rd. 
Tickets to the event are donation only and can be obtained via the same website mentioned earlier, which is www.59. Oh, pardon me, that's not the same. This one, though, is www.59e59.org. Then on the 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, San Francisco Jazz will host a free virtual panel discussion that will examine the current state of the intersection of jazz and race and its historical context from the music's inception to the present day. Hosted by educator, author, and SF Jazz board trustee, Claude Steele. Panelists for this discussion include four world-renowned artists and writers with unique perspectives on the subject. Drummer and composer Terry Lynn Carrington, former New York Times jazz critic and author Nate Chinen, author, educator, and SF Jazz board trustee Angela Davis, and multi-instrumentalist and vocalist Rhiannon Giddens. A Q&A session will follow the discussion, allowing viewers to submit questions to the panelists. Registration is required, and I'm going to give you the website for that as well. It is free. Go to www.sfjazz.org slash jazz and race, all one word. That will be running Sunday, February 28th, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And speaking of the jazz world, I'm going to segue over to an in-depth memoriam for Milford Graves, exceptional drummer, inventor, and polymath, who has died at age 79. This comes from the New York Times obituaries written by Giovanni Rusinello. By the time Milford Graves took up the jazz drum kit in his early 20s, he had spent years playing timbales in Afro-Latin groups, but on the kit he was confronted with the new challenge of using foot, paddles, put foot pedals as well as his hands. Rather than learn the standard jazz technique, he drew from what he already knew. In the Latin ensembles, he said, we'd be doing dance movements while we were playing. So I said, that's all I'll do. I'm going to start dancing down below, and I started dancing on the hi-hat. The resulting style was unlike anything heard before in jazz. Mr. Graves mixed polyrhythms constantly, sometimes carrying a different cadence in each limb. The rhythms would diverge, then vaporize. He moved the bottom skills from his drums, deepening and dil dilating their sound, Often he used his elbows to dampen the head of a drum as he struck it, making its pitch malleable and introducing a new range of possibilities. But he wasn't a drummer exclusively, or even first. Mr. Graves, who died at 79 on February 12th at his home in South Jamaica, Queens, was also a botanist, acupuncturist, martial artist, impresario, 
college professor, visual artist, and student of the human heartbeat. In his basement, he focused on cardiology, acupuncture, and herbalism. And in almost every arena, he was an inventor. In the cosmos, everything, planets, they're all in motion, Mr. Graves said in a Milford Graves full mantis, which was a 2018 documentary film directed by his longtime student, Jake McGinsky. He went on, we've got so much cosmic energy going through us, and the drumming is supposed to be very related to the intake of this cosmic energy. That's the loop that we have with the cosmos. His life had taken one last poetic turn in 2018, seemingly at the start of a late career renaissance. Mr. Graves learned that he had amyloid cardiomyopathy, a rare heart disease known as stiff heart syndrome. He was given six months to live, but since the 1960s he had been studying the human heart, focusing on the power of rhythm and sound to address its pathologies. So he became his own patient, using remedies and insights that he had developed over decades, and he lived for over two more years. His daughter, Renita Graves, said his death was attributed to congestive heart failure brought on by amyloid cardiomyopathy. Mr. Graves said of his, uh, of his diagnosis, It's like some higher power saying, Okay, buddy, you wanted to study this. Here you go. Now the challenge is inside of me. Milford Robert Graves was born on August 20, 1941, in Queens and raised there in the South Jamaica Houses, a public housing development. His mother, Gunive Williams Graves, pardon me, that's William Graves, was a homemaker, and his father, Marvin, drove a limousine. Early in Milford's career, Marvin Graves would drive his son to performances in the limo. By the time Milford could read, he was already drumming. The first band he put together in junior high school was a drum and dance group and he was soon at the fore of his own Latin music ensembles, including the McKinley Graves Band and the Milford Graves Latino Quintet. By the mid-1960s, he had found his way to the avant-garde, at first through collaborations with the saxophonist Giuseppe Logan. He then joined the New York Art Quartet, whose 1964 debut album prominently featured Mr. Graves' elusive drumming, it has since become part of the free jazz canon. Meanwhile, he undertook a serious study of the Indian tabla while continuing to push his own style toward the brink. In a 1965 column for Downbeat magazine, the poet and organizer Amiri Baraka enthused that Mr. Graves' drumming must be heard at once. He wrote, Graves has a rhythmic drive, a constant piling up of motor energies that makes him a distinct stylist. Mr. Graves joined the band of the saxophonist Albert Eiler in 1967. Its historic performance included an appearance at John Coltrane's funeral. That same year, Mr. Graves won the Downbeat Critics Award for the Brightest Young Talent. He began to appear more often as a leader or in duos and embraced a full-body approach to performing. 
He vocalized more from behind the drum set, usually in a babble or a rhythmic cry. As his career went on, his performances came to include philosophical, humorous lectures in roughly equal measure to the music. With black nationalism gaining steam, Mr. Graves helped lead the way for a cadre of musicians seeking self-determination in the industry. He started the Self-Reliance Project record label to release his own albums and became involved in actions on behalf of student protesters and revolutionary groups. For much of the 1960s, he lived with his wife and children in the East New York section of Brooklyn, then returned to his old neighborhood in 1970, moving into the South Jamaica house where his grandparents had lived. They had once used the house's basement as a neighborhood speakeasy, but when Mr. Graves moved in, he converted it into a dojo, where he practiced and taught Yara, a martial art of his own creation. Its name is the Yoruba word for agility, and its practices mixed East Asian traditions with West African dance, as well as in insights from Mr. Graves' close study of live praying mantises. The basement eventually became his laboratory where he focused on cardiology, acupuncture, and herbalism. He also worked in a veterinary lab during the 1970s where he set up and ran clinical tests to investigate new medicines. In the house's garden, he mixed plants from all parts of the world. He said in the documentary, I have a global garden. My garden's not like people. You've got all these people of different ethnicities. They all hang out in their own communities. This don't work like that. They all hang out together here. In addition to his daughter, Renita, Mr. Graves is survived by his wife of more than 60 years, Lois Graves, three other daughters, Kim, Monifa, and Lene Graves, his son, Kevin, and grandchildren. At the invitation of Bill Dixon, a trumpeter and organizer, Mr. Graves joined the faculty of the Black Music Division at Bennington College, where he taught for 39 years, traveling to Vermont once a week for classes. But he also ministered to musicians who traveled from afar to seek him out and to a devoted following of men living in the neighborhood who respected him as a community elder. For decades, he hosted martial arts workshops, herbalism clinics, and salons that doubled as drum lessons. To all the participants, he was known simply as Professor. Mr. Graves often demanded that visitors submit to recording their heartbeats for research purposes. Initially, he worked with analog tape recorders, attaching speakers to people's chests. After receiving a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2000, he bought a full suite of computers and loaded them with the LabVIEW application, which he programmed to measure and document the wide range of sonic frequencies created by the human heart. He then created a kind of electronic music out of the frequencies and sought to use this music to strengthen the natural heartbeat. In recent years, he developed a partnership with Carlo Ventura, a cardiologist at the University of Bologna, doing research that demonstrated, they said, that his heart music could be used to stimulate cell gro stem cell growth as well. 
Late in life, Mr. Graves began creating sculptural works inspired by his research into the heart, and he was quickly embraced by the visual art world. In the months before he died, he was the subject of a far-ranging and well-received retrospective exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Philadelphia. In a 2009 interview for All About Jazz, Mr. Graves said he had always sought to treat every second of the waking day as a chance for inquiry. Don't tell me how many years you've been doing something, he said. I want to know how completely you're filling that time, how you're spending each nanosecond. Well, an intriguing life for sure. And I was curious about watching that documentary and I've learned that um, one is able to gain access to that Milford Graves Full Mantis both on um, YouTube video and Amazon Prime video. Following that, we're going to move to the mm, literary world. And I have a review and commentary on recently published Glimpses of Heaven. Mm, Nope, the title of the book that's been published is The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. And it is by Henry Louis Gates, Jr., It's published by Penguin Press, and this article is entitled Glimpses of Heaven. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. recounts the central role of religion in the black struggle for freedom. Articles written by John Meacham came in the Sunday edition of this week's New York Times. In the beginning, there were the praise houses, rudimentary sanctuaries constructed in places like Silver Bluff, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, and Petersburg, Virginia, products of the Great Awakening of the 18th century, the growing churches were built by and for enslaved people. As the machinery of slavery churned on with no end in sight, writes Henry Louis Gates, Jr. in The Black Church, his engaging companion volume to a new PBS series, He goes on, enslaved black people found their glimpse, their first glimpse of heaven on earth in the praise house. The lifting of souls, though, was not limited to the spirit, but also helped shape society. In slavery, you couldn't go down the road and visit anyone, said the scholar Mary Rivers Legree, speaking with Gates. Gathering here, they not only prayed, But after the services were over, they could talk to each other about who might have had a baby up the road, who might have died, who was sold. The church father, Tertullian, insisted that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the Roman Catholic Church. To Gates, the black church is the soil in which black culture and political action flowered. It was a co- oh, pardon me. It is a commonplace but not un- uncontroversial argument. A tragic irony of the American experience is that faith has been deployed to suppress as well as to liberate, to exclude as well as to include, to control as well as to free. To tell the story of the black church is something of a risk, even to a scholar as secure as Gates. 
for voices in the arena of racial justice have long diminished religion as overly safe and accommodationist. Roughly put, the Bible is fine, but black power is what's needed. Sermons have their place, but they are no substitute for revolution. Martin Luther King Jr. was dismissed as delard by younger activists, and as the 1960s wore on, John Lewis was sometimes seen as a Sunday school pacifist whose commitment to Christian nonviolence was too old-fashioned. Yet Gates writes here as an historian, and the historian can chronicle progress, assess its origins, and commemorate its course while noting its incompleteness. Violent insurrection would have been a form of racial suicide. He writes, insurrection meant death. So black Americans used what was at hand, faith and religiously based appeals and action in the struggle for freedom. Gates himself is working within a biblical tradition. Remembrance lies at the heart of both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. At the Last Supper, Jesus said simply, Do this in remembrance of me, a command. The the Anglican monk Dom Gregory Dix once wrote, That's arguably, oh, well, I'll continue with that. That's arguably the most obeyed exhortation in history. To remember is orienting and illuminating, and we should always bear in mind that faith is an essential element of the nation's story, for good or for ill. It is clear that the study of Negro religion is not only a vital part of the history of the Negro in America. This was written by W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk which was published in 1903, but no uninteresting part of American history. Relying heavily on the voices of myriad scholars and clergy members, often combined in the same person, like Kelly Brown Douglas or Jonathan L. Walton, Gates traces the story back even before Jamestown. The foundation of the African-American spiritual journey, he writes, was formed out of fragments of faith that our ancestors brought with them to this continent starting 500 years ago, not 400. He chronicles the Spanish New World and describes the strands of belief and practice from Roman Catholicism to African religions to Islam that created the basis for the black church. The stories of deliverance from the Pharaoh and from sin held out that rarest of things for the enslaved, hope. We have to give the church its due as a source of our ancestors' unfathomable resiliency, and perhaps the first formalized site for the collective fashioning and development of so many African-American aesthetic forms, argues Gates. He went on, although black people made spaces for secular expression, Only the church afforded room for all of it to be practiced at the same time. At its best, biblical religion is about reversal and transformation, the most resonant of messages for black people in a 
white supremacist America. Never confuse position